the latest on Stanford baseball and an all-time great in Stanford football. We're coming at you big on this episode of the TreeCast with Troy Clarity, presented by the Believe Podcast Network. Wednesday, May 20th, 2020. Glad you are along for the ride with us. I'm Troy Clarity. Hey, how you doing? You had a good week so far? I hope so. Whether you have or you haven't, we hope that uh, your week gets better after you listen to this episode of the show. A lot to get to. Can't wait to do it. Our guest list, as distinguished as it comes, the head coach of Stanford Baseball, David Esker. Looking forward to getting his thoughts on, on what he was hoping to see around this time of year with Stanford Baseball. And look, some challenges ahead. Uh, for uh, college baseball as a whole. So David Esker uh, is going to join us here in a few minutes. And I'm really looking forward to this. One of my all-time favorite players in Stanford football. Heck, in, in my career following Stanford sports, won the Bolitnikoff Award in 1999. Man, I, was, I miss watching him catch a football. Troy Walters, what's he up to now? You're going to like our chat with him as that's coming up a bit later on in the show. So David Esker and Troy Walters and you hit me up on Twitter at Troy Clarity. The last name is spelled C-L-A-R-D-Y at Troy Clarity. 27 years of following Stanford sports underneath my belt and also uh, Pac-12 Network play-by-play for the past six seasons. So certainly this uh, podcast and bringing this podcast uh, to the spring has been uh, really a lot of fun and uh, really helped keep me out of trouble. So that's obviously a a good thing, too. Uh, I always appreciate uh, the follow on Twitter and your thoughts. I always uh, like those. uh, Hashtag TreeCast on Twitter. Hashtag TreeCast. And thanks to the Believe Podcast Network. So many shows, 250 plus, not just on sports, but in other facets of life. Uh, No shortage of things for you on the Believe Podcast Network. I highly suggest you check them out. B-L-E-A-V.com. Normally, we would give you three things you need to know around Stanford football or Stanford athletics, but we're going to start the show by acknowledging a tremendous loss and a tragic loss. I was super shocked to to see this news come across uh, late Thursday night as the Stanford athletics family lost Zach Hoffpower of both Stanford football and baseball, Hoffpower passing away in his sleep last Thursday. Drop whatever you're doing and watch. Here's Zach Hoffpower. This one's hit deep to left. Peters back. He turns and watches it go. Hoffpower goes boom again. 5 nothing Cardinal. Well, that's my call on the Pac-12 network of of what an amazing series that he had at Cal back in April of 2015. Uh, hit three home runs that weekend in uh, at Evans Diamond. Uh, nine runs driven in. A towering double. Uh, that could have been his fourth home run of the weekend. He thought it was gone too. Ended up getting thrown out at third. Made a great catch over the bullpen wall and right at Evans Diamond. Started a bench-clearing confrontation and uh, helped, st- helped uh, Stanford take two out of three against Cal. What a weekend that was for Zach Hoffpower and a uh, and a pretty distinguished career for him as well, both on both in football and in baseball. Hoffpower All-Pac-12 as a defensive back for Stanford in 2014, but was drafted by the Arizona Diamondbacks. And I remember, I remember Hoffpower talking with J.T. Snow, my broadcast partner, that weekend in 2015 in Berkeley, and, and he admitted to J.T. that it was a dream of his to be drafted by a big league team, a big league baseball team, and, and that the toll of of football was on his mind, and that that hitting home runs was more fun than hitting ball carriers. So, Hoffpower got drafted by Arizona, went on to baseball, spent spent his season there, came back to Stanford, and then uh, went back to a baseball uh, with the 2018 season in the minor leagues. Now, the details uh, coming out about Hoffpower's death, we still don't know the exact cause of his death as he had died in his sleep, but uh, some details about his life leading up to it with depression, uh, suffered some concussions, um, had a suicide attempt. Uh, Hoffpower admitting that uh, himself uh, on, on a podcast that he appeared on uh, last fall, and uh, appeared that he was, you know, putting things together. Uh, had just signed on to be part of the football coaching staff at Northern Colorado, where their head coach is Ed McCaffrey. We talked about that uh, a few weeks ago, and just the outpouring of tributes from former teammates and coaches was was just overwhelming. Talking about about Zach's just bubbly personality and how he'd win all the dance contests 
and would challenge everyone to be at their best both on and off the field. Zach Hoffpower, gone at age 26. In an alternate universe, Stanford baseball would be heading to Seattle this weekend to wrap up their regular season, hopefully make a push uh, towards another NCAA tournament appearance. Obviously, that is not the case. And we're left, as far as the college baseball season is concerned, to just talk about what-ifs and a lot of challenges ahead. Very pleased to be joined right now by the head coach of Stanford baseball. He's just finished up. I guess two full seasons and now I guess a third season as the Stanford head coach and was also a critical member of the two of the national championship squads uh, for Stanford back in the eighties. Always fun to chat with the one and only David Esker. David, thanks a bunch. Appreciate the time. How are you doing today? I'm doing fine. I'm doing fine. Thanks, Troy. You yeah. You know what? Uh, we would be heading to, to Washington and, and probably putting the, the, the cap on an incredible turnaround uh, of season and and looking forward to a regional at least in my brain that's what I'm playing it out right now <laughs> yeah I'll get I'll get your further thoughts on on what needed to happen in order for Stanford to turn things around during the course of the season we'll get your thoughts on that in just a moment or so but but I have to start here uh, tremendously tragic loss for the Stanford baseball and Stanford football families uh, with the passing of Zach Hoff power last week now you didn't coach Hoff but you coached against him and you were in that opposing dugout during just that monstrous uh, series that he had against the bears and Evans diamond in 2015. Uh, what are some of your remembrances of Zach Hoff power from afar and maybe even from up close? Yeah, well, and, and I knew Zach and I knew him very well, you know, he had committed to go to Cal and he was going to play football and baseball at Cal first. Uh, and I believe it was, he was not a scholarship uh, recipient there and then and then received a scholarship offer from Stanford football and then you know appropriately uh, changed his mind and decided to come to Stanford so I knew him from the recruiting process uh, I knew him because his intentions were to play both baseball and, and football at, at Cal as well um, and then and then I was there for that weekend I always followed him he was he was somebody that you know hey we really felt like was uh, uh, the type of player you'd want in any baseball program you know kind of that typical Stanford uh, football, baseball player that brought that tough mindedness of, of football with the ability to play, you know, obviously Pac-12 baseball, you know, whether it's in the John Lynch or Toy Cook or Chad Hutchinson, you know, just all those great names of, of dual sport athletes. And, and he was, and he was one of them. And he had an, a, you know, quick story. He had an incredible series against us, one series at, at, at Cal, he had two home runs in a game that we were winning pretty handily uh, at the start of the game. And by the end, his second home run tied it late. And I, it, it might've been nine to nine, but it was some incredible high score. We ended up winning in the bottom of the ninth with, with uh, a base runner crawling over home plate just ahead of a tag. And uh, the next day he started off just as hot and, and hit a home run to, to start the ball game. And hey, he was an emotional player. I think there was a little bat flip involved and a little emotion on both sides. And I think our catcher got a little excited in our pitching our bench. And um, after the game, I, I received a text from, from Zach. And he says, hey, coach, I, I apologize. I didn't mean to do that. I didn't mean to start something up. And, um, you know, it's not really who I am. And, and just wanted to let you know I'm sorry for that. And, and my response to Zach was, hey, Zach, we're good. And, and I have no problems with that. I said, it's about time we had a little emotion in that Stanford Cal baseball series. So I'm good with it. Thanks for doing that, you know. I just remember all the glory years and hey, people could probably right now go in uh, YouTube, a, a big Stanford Cal baseball fight and from 1987 on the team that I was involved in where Ed Spray got hit by a pitch and charged the mound. It was a big, a big brawl, but that was kind of the emotion that was always there with the Stanford Cal series. And I didn't mind that being around. It was all in, all in good, healthy, you know, hard competition, but yeah, just heartbreaking to to hear of his loss and, and the type of player and what he meant to both Stanford football and baseball. I know he's got a, a number of close friends who are uh, Stanford baseball alumni and, and just, just reaching out to them and heart goes out to them as well for their loss. Yeah, tremendously tragic. And uh, it, was, it was fun watching and calling that series on the Pac-12 network and just keeping an eye on what he was able to do, uh, both in the football field and the baseball field, and, and hearing some other details about, you know, of, of his life and mental health struggles and things like that. It, it seems like 
with coaches, mental health is becoming more and more of, of, of a forward facing thing as far as taking care of your student athletes and making sure that they're not just good physically and not just good academically, but also good uh, mentally and psychologically as well. Uh, what are some trends that you've noticed as far as, as far as that's concerned as a head coach, as a guy who's run a program, what are some trends that you've noticed in, in that direction over the past few years? Well, health and wellness is, 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 is you're right. It is to the forefront now. Right. And, and, um, in addition to things that maybe weren't probably paid strong attention to in the past, even as nutrition, um, you know, training has, has taken to another level. And it really is just kind of the, you know, the 360, 24 seven model of the student athlete th these days, where you're going to try to make sure that you're addressing all forms of health, whether it's physical health, mental health, um, just, just in, in development of the total athlete and, and just, you know, the ability to cope with and deal with stress or failure or just performance. Um, you know, there, there's, there's a lot of pieces to that that go, that go together. And um, I think universities and Stanford in particular have been doing great jobs in making more progress into being able to help the student athletes at all levels and, and not just on the field and not just with skill. Let's talk about Stanford baseball and where it sits right now. Uh, you got 16 games in, won just five of them, tough results overall, youth all over the place. Uh, pitching, very nice. Hitting, defense, maybe conspiring against the Cardinal for, uh, for much of the season. Uh, what did you make of things on the field from the season that Stanford was able to have? Well, hey, the results obviously weren't, weren't what any, anybody would have wanted. But, you know, to be, to be honest, probably when I – when I took the job, I, I kind of knew this year was was in the future necessarily. You know, recruiting had kind of hit the pause button a little prior to me getting here. So uh, we knew that, hey, we would probably be really young by our third year. And with, uh, with some of the talent we had in the program, uh, you know, thankfully they progressed uh, as well as we thought they could. And, you know, we lost about six or seven juniors at a given time. So we knew that with with probably with the major league baseball draft and with as young as we would have been probably with, and with a little bit of pause button that recruiting took in a given year. And we made a um, strategical, you know, uh, move to, to really kind of pull back from that recruiting year and not just go out there and frivolously spend recruiting dollars. So we knew, Hey, uh, this could be a challenge year, but one that we would have talent in the program, it was just going to be young. And that's, and that's what we found. We had a lot of just unproven, there probably was very few, and maybe one, Tim Tawa and Brendan Beck, maybe a two, that, that may have had a resume of success necessarily. Very few players and nobody on the field. I believe that Tim was probably the only field player that maybe had that resume um, with some partial players. Uh, Christian Mofetta had played some for us, and Christian Robinson had played some for us. Um, Nick Bellafrano obviously had a kind of a breakout year the year before. But we knew that we were probably potentially going to play six, seven, you know, unproven players during the course of the year. Um, the humbling part of it, which I think you found out, is there's probably no formula to get seven freshmen ready to play Pac-12 baseball and be successful right away. You know, and as a matter of fact, I think the lesson that we had and kind of the roadmap is we knew with as many juniors as we had lost the year before and, you know, from the Dashbox to Hanley's to Stowers to Jack Little and, uh, you know, all those players that played so great for us, you know, none of them were really impact freshmen, you know, none of them were really the type of freshmen that came out there and just hitched a team onto their back and was able to carry them. So uh, we knew it was going to take some time and we knew it was going to be a year of just great patience and we we're going to probably learn on the run. Uh, I think I knew ahead of time that we probably the, the offense was going to be a work in progress. And while I feel, you know, incredibly you know, optimistic about what we what Stanford baseball has in the future because uh, we have the players in the program that are going to get us there. We just have to we just have to make sure that we you know uh, develop that talent and 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 get it to that point. The same point that we got the the Dashbox Stowers, Hanleys, and Bellafranos, you know, before before they had their time. We feel like we're just kind of in that development stage. It was interesting because, you know, you and I talked before the season and you said, hey, look, you know, I expect us to be playing a lot better in April and May than things might potentially yeah. look in, in February and March. Got through February, got through the first couple weeks of March. Uh, were there things that you saw during those, during those first few weeks that made you confident that 
things were going to turn around and things were going to look a bit more cohesive in April and May? Yeah, you know, you just, just, just the, the point of the year when your freshmen are no longer freshmen, right? Where the, the game is kind of normalized itself a little bit, you know, they've kind of been able to just be out there enough. And, you know, hey, when, you, when you've got great player, you know, Brock Jones is going to be just a, a great player for us, right? And, 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 you know, Adam Crampton was just getting a baptism by fire and, uh, you know, just, just up and down the lineup, uh, players that were just trying to get themselves, their feet on the ground, even in this year with just some players that hadn't done a lot of playing in their career, you know, and we felt like it was going to kind of balance out and even out and kind of get to a happy medium where there would have been a combination of youth and some of those older players, you know, the Bellafrano, Christian Molfetta, Christian Robinson would have got themselves to, to, to their normal level of play or probably their, uh, their better level of play before the season got started. We just hadn't got to that point quite yet, you know, and I think it was there in the future for us. And, and hey, we were confident we were going to get this thing moving and on a, uh, you know, an incline. And, and as we got our freshmen to get beyond that freshman early stage and we got some of those older players beyond the, hey, I'm just getting my first chances to play stage. Um, you know, I was excited for not only the growth that we were going to face this period, but, you know, I've just got incredible confidence on what's in the future for our program. Officially, Stanford played 16 games this year. Unofficially, y'all played 17. You've seen a lot of things throughout the course of your baseball career. Where does that 18-inning marathon against Grand Canyon, five hours and 45 minutes, 577 pitches thrown, just three extra base hits in the entire game, where does that game rank among some of the more remarkable things uh, that you've seen uh, in your career? Yeah, I've not played many games like that, you know. Um, and, and, and even, you know, uh, I think it was bottom of the eighth or bottom of the ninth inning, we had one of our players called uh, on a strikeout with the right. go-ahead run on base. Right. Uh, with a clock, a, a clock violation, right? And I think when I when I saw that the we didn't get a chance to drive in the winning run because of a clock violation, I probably I probably had a hint that it was going to be an unusual game. In many ways, it was a little uh, a, a, a little exercise in futility, you know. We, uh, with the offenses that we've had the past couple of years, you just didn't didn't see our offense get throttled that way for so long. Um, just hoping that it you know eventually turn our way, but. Yeah, had not played many 18 inning games, which was, you know, it was a four, it was a four game series that turned into a five game series in a hurry. <laughs> yeah, one of the more incredible. I've seen a lot of things that sunk in diamond too, and that that ranks right up there as, yeah. as far as remarkable things that 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 certainly I've seen. Um, it's been over two months now. Uh, how have things been for you since the shutdown? What have been some of the things that have that have been on your agenda and some of some of your your biggest uh, things on your plate uh, since the shutdown? Yeah, you know, it, it seems like when you in, in this situation, right, with the, the pandemic and just things that are happening, that you're always in a reactive state. You're not really able to get out ahead of things and plan things and move things forward. You're just kind of reacting, you know, and. Uh, you know, I, I seem to give ourselves about 15 day uh, checkpoints, you know, where, where are we going to be at on April 15th, April 30th, May 15th, May 30th, and, you know, whether whether we're just going to be in, in, in a similar position, are we going to advance a little bit, is things going to open up, we're trying to stay in contact with the team and give them as much support as we can, you know, they missed out on their season, we're not really utilizing it as a, you know, we're not, we're not going over cutoffs and relays and bunt defenses necessarily at this point, but, uh, we're trying to stay in contact with them and, and keep them, you know, keep them in touch with what, uh, what our focus and goals have been, even though they may be in the future. We haven't got the all clear to even get started training and, and just trying to make sure that, uh, you know, at, at this point, you know, paying attention to where they're at in school and how they're dealing with online learning, which is kind of a brand new experience for them. And then just kind of get them ready for, we are eventually going to get, get, get back to the, the drawing board and where, and, and Stanford baseball is going to be in a very good place when we get there, you know, the, with, with the returning players, with a year of, of just some experience, uh, but also a year of growth and just maturity and with, with an incredibly exciting freshman class that's coming in behind them, you know, uh, um, just, just nothing but positives and optimism for, for what Stanford baseball has got ahead of them. And, you know, uh, I don't, I don't go on a, on a limb very often, but I, I do believe that, that the personnel we'll have in our program will compete for a national championship at some point. And, and that, that excites myself and the coaches. And 
we've got to do a good job of developing that talent and getting them there. Uh, we've got to get through this period of time where we're not able to be together and kind of move them forward. It looks like summer baseball is not going to happen. So that's another development period that we're going to be behind. But we are going to get a chance to get everybody together and get on a baseball field at some point. And when we get that, when we get that and we get our people together, uh, I'm pretty excited about what we have. Yeah, what sort of positives do you think could possibly come um, from this whole situation? And, and what are some of the challenges that are in the immediate future for you right now? Well, hey, the positives, you know, which was the blessings in disguise is our, our players will get a chance to, you know, just mature during this course of the year. And, and it really is, it really speaks to the heart of what a, a Stanford student athlete is. And one is you don't get a chance to, to get to Stanford and play at this level unless you've got some certain level of self-motivation. So one, we're playing right into their strengths. You know, many of our players are self-motivated and, and got that internal motors to get themselves uh, to where they need to be. Uh, we rely on that. We give a lot of autonomy to our players. We want to give them the tools and the equipment to, to be good players, but then we want to build the atmosphere where they can take those tools and take it to the next level. Well, you know, right now we're depending on them a little bit on what they're able to do uh, personally. Uh, they all have incredible goals and they're all, they, they wouldn't be Stanford student athletes if they weren't self-starters and self-motivated. So if I'm, if I'm gonna put my, uh, my trust in a certain type of individual, you know, the Stanford student athlete is gonna be at the top of the list of what you'd wanna have. And, and they're gonna have that opportunity to really kind of, kind of take that trust and confidence and, and bring it back to, you know, Sunken Diamond and to Stanford campus when it, when it comes that time. Had Kyle Peterson, one of the all-time greats for Stanford baseball on the show a few weeks ago, and we kind of went over some of the challenges that might be ahead for, uh, for the entire landscape uh, of college baseball across the nation. Um, NCAA granting, uh, spring, uh, granting spring athletes in another year of eligibility. Uh, that'll increase the roster size, but also the Major League Baseball draft going from 40 rounds to just five rounds this year. Uh, what are some of your initial thoughts on some effects that might have on things for next season? Well, it could be twofold, right? It's obviously maybe one of those blessings that comes with a little, a, a little fallout, right? And, and, and you may have to, you know, deal with some of the, uh, just the, the, the reciprocal uh, effects of, of those two things. One, the, the senior, um, adding the year of, of senior, uh, eligibility, that's not going to have a real effect on our, on our roster per se. We did have uh, three fifth year seniors, you know, uh, Nick Bellafrano and Christian Molfetta uh, and Nick Orr who came back and, you know, we loved having them back and we're expecting, you know, great things from them and, and from their leadership and experience that they, uh, on a team that had very little experience. Um, but they were in, they were in programs that were ending, you know, uh, and, and not Nick was in a grad school program and Christian was finishing up his undergraduate and, and as was Nick. So they will not be back next year. And, uh, we wish them, we wish them well. And, and it's just, it's just not something that they could extend their, uh, their clock by another year at Stanford. Uh, they had kind of just finished their programs. So the, the senior part of it is not going to have a great effect. Um, we're hoping that Zach Gretsch, who was a senior, will return. He's going to, uh, he's applying for a co-term program. So, you know, Zach Gretsch and Jonathan Worley are two seniors who are, who are coming back to grad school. And they'll be back and they'll, they'll be welcome additions to our, our, our program in a year. They, they, they'll be great, great assets. Um, beyond that, we're probably going to be more affected by the 40-round by the draft going to a five-round draft. We probably had a number of players that probably projected to go from round six to 40. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we, hey, we will welcome them back with open arms, but with the, but it's one of the reciprocal effects. So we'll probably have to get creative to make all that scholarship work beneath the 11.7 cap. Um, Cause you know, unexpectedly we may have expected them to be in a position that their game was be ready for professional baseball. Um, that opportunity won't present itself. Again, it'll only make us a stronger program to have those type of players back in the program. But it'll be a little bit of challenge, you know, scholarship-wise to make that work. And, we, and, and we'll be creative and, and we'll come out and be able to make that, that work. But I think that's something that most schools and probably schools in the Power Five, which, you know, have those type of talents in their program, the SECs, the Big Ten, uh, Pac-12 as well, right, Big 12, um, that have a number of players that, that, that sign those professional contracts. Not just one, but probably a number, a handful of, 
uh, players that would project to definitely go from round six to 40. And then now that they'll be coming back to school along with maybe even one or two and not necessarily Stanford, but let's say Pac-12, they may have a, a one or two incoming freshmen that as they develop, they felt like, well, hey, this guy's a top 10 draft pick. He may not be coming to, to college necessarily. College baseball is going to be as talented as it's been in a number of years with a number of returning players and then matriculating freshmen who may not have you know, been able to make it to campus. That's going to happen. So it's going to be a really exciting and interesting year. As far as Stanford is concerned, I don't think there's a lot of negative effects from that happening. There are some effects. I think we're going to be a stronger program and have a lot more better players in addition to uh, a, a great developing freshman class and an extremely talented incoming freshman class. So I think that's the reason for the excitement and my optimism and, and something to look forward to when we finally get back to the field. A couple last things for you here. Uh, you took Cal to the 2011 College World Series in the middle of, of just everything that was swirling around that program at that time. It was basically extinct, uh, about to be extinct, yeah. but um, fortunately you took them to Omaha and things changed after that. What sort of lessons from that experience, by the way, I think that's got to be the coaching job of the century, no matter what happens going forward. But what sort of lessons from that do you perhaps apply to what you're going through now? Well, you know, hey, fortunately, um, one, I learned a little bit of the coping strategy of one when, when you lose a year of recruiting, right? And so um, what this year brought and the challenges this year brought, I'd, I'd experienced before because when they dropped the program, what it meant is what it, what it meant for us is we had to we had to let go all all our incoming uh, and our signing class that would have signed that November. We let all our recruits go. They went other places. We we had zero recruiting class. We had to pick up recruiting after reinstatement, and they didn't reinstate the Cal baseball program until late April. Um, by that time, we were in, we were you know head first into our season and and looking to make a a regional super regional World Series run, which we did. Uh, and we didn't get back to recruiting necessarily until after the College World Series, right? So it was late June before we really got to get back on the recruiting trail. Now, unfortunately, we probably made some mistakes in response to that lost year of recruiting, where I learned uh, the, the tough lesson to not just go out and try to fill a roster with players that you may not have recruited had you had that time early. So that's why we made that strategical move this, uh, once I got here to probably just kind of hold our ground and not, and not rush into any recruiting mistakes that we may have made, which I think served us well. I mean, we've got an incre incredible amount of talent in our, in our program because of that. But I think it, it taught me to learn that hey, there's, gonna be, there's gonna be a year of patience you're gonna have to deal with. And, and this was gonna be that year of patience. You're gonna develop and you're gonna, you're gonna surprise some people, uh, but there's no clear cut way to make up for, you know, a, a lost year of recruiting necessarily. I think the year that, that Cal dropped the program taught me that. Uh, it also taught me there's no manual or there's no handbook on how you deal with the program that uh, that gets cut, right? And you and, and, and again, it's just adversity that you have to continue to deal with. And um, I, I think I think a lot of my patience and, and how I have to, you know, take things slow and, and, and deal with adversity had come from that year that, that, that Cal dropped the program. Unfortunately, um, if you're reading, you know, the news nowadays, there's a, there's a couple other programs that are having to face that same, that same fate, which is, which you don't like to see in college baseball. Yeah. Furman and Bowling, Bowling Green, unfortunately, yeah. are cutting their programs. Really hate to, uh, seeing that news for anyone. Uh, as we wrap this up, I, I think you've hinted at this a couple portions throughout this chat, but, but just so it's all on the table here, what excites you most about the future of Stanford baseball? Wow. I'm just telling you, I, you know, the, the back-to-back -back recruiting classes that we put together, um, which, which is really exciting. And it's not just talent. I think we've got incredible makeup and I think we've sold them on, on, you know, just the, the brotherhood that they're going to step into uh, just an incredible, not only with the legacy of coach Marquis and, 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 and what I experienced here as a Stanford player and just the baton and the torch that he handed off to a bunch of players like the Nico Horners and, and Andrew Dashbach and Kyle Stowers and um, just just that incredible torch that was handed off to me that led to a pack one a Pac-12 championship uh, my first year 
and then a super regional on the brink of a college world series my second year but i also we think we learned a lot i think we learned a lot of, hey what what is going to bridge that gap what's going to be that difference what may have we been missing beyond experience and and we're completely capable of taking that series at mississippi state but i think we learned a lot of what could make that more of a uh, more of a certainty if we got that opportunity again and i think we've addressed those needs and i think i think that we've uh we brought in a, a, a enough talent that's going to be incredibly incredibly competitive within our program and that's what i experienced when i was here is incredibly competitive to get on the field and that honor of earning a starting job and playing on the field and then having capable players on the sideline that if, when you face that adversity and when you hit a bump in the road whether it's an injury or just somebody not performing to their level there's there's a capable player on the sidelines ready to take that up i think having a program that is not just made up of talent but makeup right and i think that's what i learned when you when you when you break it down to the great Stanford teams of the past, the 87, 88s that I was around, or hey, just watching on ESPNU, they had they they were replaying the Stanford final game of 2000 uh, against LSU, and which the game didn't just didn't go their way. Yeah. They were completely talented enough to be the national champion. The game didn't just finish their way, but the Jason Youngs and John Galls and Eric Bruntlets, and uh, when I watched that game, I just I, one thing that I really that I really focused on was just the faces of the competitors on that team, just just how they carry themselves and their body language, and be behind that body language and behind those faces, you knew the makeup of those players that it takes to win at Stanford and to compete from Stanford for a national championship. I kind of I, I kind of dream that I see that in the faces of the players that are in the program now and the ones that are coming. So I think that is a lot of my optimism and excitement of the people that are in the program now and, uh, and, and, the, and the players that will be coming in the future. Yeah, yeah. you know what it looks like. And, uh, hey, w when there are high-stakes games being played at Sunken Diamond, even when there aren't high-stakes games being played at Sunken Diamond, there are a few better places to be uh, than at the ball yard at Stanford. I can't well, wait until it all starts up again. I appreciate it. Yeah, you know, and I, and I think that's, that's just part of it, right? You know, I, I kind of have tried to quantify it as I say, you know, there, there's a there's a certain Stanford it, you know, when, when you have it, it's it. I don't know what it's like to win at UCLA or Arizona State, but I, I've lived it. I've been in the clubhouse, you know, when it's won at Stanford. Uh, I've been there, you know, in the first base coaching box and as an assistant coach when they've won at Stanford. Um, I've been fortunate enough to be, you know, uh, at the head of a program that went to Omaha and then obviously with the success we've had the last couple of years. So. I think I've got it surrounded of what it what it what it feels like, tastes like, smells like, and 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 just looking to put that put that um, that touch and bring those type of people together to do it in you know at Stanford again. And hey, that's my dream is to is to one is to bring them back the experience that I had at Stanford, which is that brotherhood and that excitement. Um, but two, obviously, you know, uh, come back to my alma mater and and bring them a national championship and kind of and kind of feel that from a different side. Yeah, that would be outstanding stuff. Looking forward to seeing how things shake out um, in the years to come. David, always appreciate the time. Best of luck, best of uh, health to you and, and, and your family and the staff and the players as well. Thanks a bunch. We'll talk again soon. I appreciate it, Troy. Thank you. That's a good dude right there. That's a good guy. David Esker with uh, good stuff. Really appreciate uh, him taking time out and joining us here on the TreeCast. And uh, he thinks that, that Stanford has the personnel with the coaching and development to compete for a national championship within the next few years. I like how he thinks. I like how he thinks. I would love nothing more than to see just that. Stanford football legend Troy Walters coming up in just a moment, but first, live sports is slowly but surely making a comeback. But in the meantime, there are still things that you can find a wager on. NASCAR is back. We know that. There is Madden and NBA 2K simulations. Online casino with poker and blackjack. You want all those things? Go to betonline.ag. Betonline.ag. And next Sunday, BetOnline has ex-Chicago Bulls Horace Grant, Bill Cartwright, Craig Hodges, and Ron Harper. Uh, they're joining BetOnline to discuss, of course, the Michael Jordan documentary, uh, the, the, the Last Dance. But they're calling it, those four guys are calling it, the final dance. I know Horace Grant had some 
rather uh, interesting things to say about uh, how he was portrayed uh, by MJ during The Last Dance. So head to betonline.ag, use the promo code MYPOD100 to receive your welcome bonus on your first deposit. BetOnline, your online wagering solution. Banks gets the snap, not much pressure, and he gets it away. A line driver, Walters ranging over, takes it to 25, now reversing his field over to the left side, losing some ground, he's got to turn the corner, gets a vicious block, turns up field, 35, 40, 45, 50, putting it back inside, still dancing, still up, 40, 35, 30, he's going to go all the way. Troy Walters with a huge punt return, goes into the end zone, touchdown Stanford, a vicious block, that was November 16th, 1996. Yours truly on the play-by-play call for KZSU that day. Stanford football in the rain against Washington State. Cardinal down 14-7, looking listless at that point, but then... That guy, Troy Walter, striking for a 75-yard punt return. That crushing block by Tim Smith helping to lead the way. Stanford went on to a 33-14 win over the Washington State Cougars that day. And that punt return, one of many tremendously ginormous plays that our next guest on the TreeCast had during his Cardinal career. The 1999 Bolitnikoff Award winner enjoyed an eight-year career in the NFL with Minnesota, Indianapolis, Arizona, and Detroit, playing with some of the great wide receivers of all time. And right now, currently, the assistant wide receivers coach for the Cincinnati Bengals, getting his first coaching job on the NFL level. A big-time pleasure to be joined right now by Troy Walters. Troy, appreciate the time. Thanks a bunch. How you doing today? I'm doing excellent. Thanks for having me. You bet. You bet. A real thrill to have you in here. And uh, I'd imagine the last few months have been a real whirlwind for you. You started the year. You were still at Nebraska, parted ways, mutually parted ways in late January, latched on a few weeks later with Cincinnati on their coaching staff. And and now you're on quarantine life. What have the last few months been like for you? It's really been the life of a, of a coach. Um, <laughs> you know, growing up, you know, there's been a, a lot of moves and Things happen, but uh, it's been great, and uh, you know, I, my faith is, has uh, got me through all of this, and it's very important, but I uh, understand that God's got a plan, but uh, yeah, we left, left Nebraska and was out in Cincinnati for about a month, um, getting acclimated to the city and the job and everything, and then the quarantine happened, and uh, so I drove back to Nebraska, and I've been here ever since with my family and um, still working for the Bengals, but just doing it uh, remotely. Yeah, it, this, is your first, this is your first time uh, on an NFL coaching staff. You've been all throughout college you know, over the past decade. More on that in a second or so. But your first time coaching on an NFL staff. You're obviously no stranger to the league. But, but what's different when you're moving from collegiate coaching to the NFL? The biggest thing is you don't have to recruit. Um, <laughs> that's the biggest thing. And, and, you know, college recruiting is 24-7. And you're always on the phone. And uh, you're always tweeting or messaging a kid. and the NFL, it's, uh, you know, you don't have that responsibility. Um, you're dealing with pros. You're dealing with the best of the best. And so what they want is a guy to come in that can help them get better, can help them, um, um, you know, make it in the NFL. Uh, you know, each guy has different goals. Some guys just want to make it. Some guys want to go from being a starter to an all-pro to a pro bowler to a Hall of Famer. So, you, you know, there's just a – uh, different type of guys and then just just learning the system learning the offense learning the terminology uh you know I was with coach uh with Zach Taylor at uh, in in uh, at Texas A&M and so yep. um, a lot of the things that we're doing with the Bengals um you know we did at Texas A&M so uh very familiar with that but uh, great staff and uh, I look forward to getting to know them even more and getting to know the players once we're able to get back into the into the office and they're able to to they're able to report and uh, be good meeting those guys as well. Yeah, and the NFL seems to be moving closer and closer to that, it seems, on a on a club-by-club -club basis um, as the days go along. It's interesting. You, you started off the chat by saying that you've been kind of living a coach's life uh, over the past uh, few months or so. So it's it's not really foreign to you, especially, you know, since day one, you're the son of a football coach. How have those experiences growing up as the son of a football coach kind of helped propel you through what you've experienced throughout much of your football life? Yeah, very blessed to, to be a coach's son and the lessons that I've learned 
Um, I always get uh, kidded a little bit about having a, two Stanford degrees and going into coaching. And I, and I tell guys that uh, it's all I know. And, uh, you know, I grew up around the game and I have a passion for coaching and teaching and mentoring. And, and uh, so that's helped a lot. And then, and then just the transitions, you know, my dad was, uh, you know, let go a few times and changed jobs and we moved around. And so I'm kind of used to being able to pick up and, and go to another location and uh, have a great wife and kids are young right now. So it's easy to transition and move a little bit, but uh, uh, just, just that experience growing up has helped me, uh, navigate all the different things that can come about uh, being a coach. Now you spent the last uh, decade plus on the collegiate level, uh, offensive coordinator for the last few years, UCF and Nebraska. Uh, having coached on the collegiate level, what, what, what were some of the, what's your sense of how offensive football collegiately kind of evolved and changed over the last decade or so? And maybe how some of those concepts have kind of, have kind of crept into the NFL. Yeah, you know, when I played, it was it was a huddle. Everyone was huddling. You're primarily a two-back offense. Um, you know, if you were in three wide receivers, you were considered a spread back then when I played. And and now if you're if you're anything but a three wide, you're 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 kind of deemed a little different. Um so you know, offense has really they've involved a more of a spread attack, uh, the RPO, the run pass option, where every play, you know, every run play, there's a built-in pass off of it depending on what the defense does um and so in just the tempo the no huddle the fast paced uh aspect of the game has changed tremendously from when i was in college and and uh you know you see some of that in the nfl uh, you know you can't run the quarterback a whole lot as much in in the nfl as you do in college because of the athletes and, and you got to keep them keep them healthy and upright but uh you know i see some tendencies i see some some um you know, strategies going from from college to the NFL, and and uh, and we'll see, we'll see. I think the game continues to evolve, and and uh, you're always trying to be one step ahead. And so, you know, I continue to wrap my mind around where football is going to be in the next five, ten, fifteen years, and and uh, how I can help uh, maybe advance offenses even more. Well, it's going to be really interesting to see uh, how that evolution uh, happens in Cincinnati. I'll get your further thoughts on what you're working with uh, with the Bengals here a bit later on in the chat. But uh, a deceptively simple question here, or maybe it's a deceptively difficult question, depending on how you want to look at it. What goes into catching a football? I mean, it's got to be more than just putting your hands out and catching the rock, right? There's just got to be so many more physical components to it and maybe some mental and psychological components as well. What goes into catching a football? Yeah, the, the biggest thing is concentration. Um, I always ask guys that, uh, what do you catch the ball with? And they always say their hands and I tell them, well, close your eyes and catch this ball. Uh, you got to have, you, know, you got to have your eyes open. You got to really focus on, uh, on, on the point. Um, and then it comes down to having natural hands. Some guys have it. Some guys don't. Some guys have to really work on catching the football, the concentration. Some guys, you know, I've blessed to play with Larry Fitzgerald and, Chris Carter and those guys, you know, they could catch the ball with one eye closed um, because they have just great hands and concentration. And so it's a, it's a mix. It's a combination. Um, what I try to tell guys is, is you've got to be able to catch the, the difficult passes. Um, everyone can catch the pass in their chest, the easy ball, but I want guys that can make the contested catches, the ones that can, um, you know, when a quarterback, we always make the quarterback looks good, look good. And so if it's a low ball, high ball behind us, we find a way to make those type of catches so that uh, the quarterback always looks good. Yeah, and I'd imagine a lot of it is just earning a quarterback's trust. I mean, the guy's got to trust you to, uh, to, to, to throw the rock in, in your direction. You'd be able to catch it. What are some ways, if you're, if you're teaching young receivers, and you are, uh, how do you earn a quarterback's trust? Uh, just that, being consistent, uh, going in day day in and day out and, and making plays for him, okay? Making plays and and, uh, and earning his trust. Sorry, I got these kiddos. Uh, <laughs> done with homeschool. Hey, hey it, it's the joys of working from home. <laughs> um, okay. But it's, uh, you know, it's, it's about earning the trust, being consistent from day to day. Uh, you know, I was, I learned that lesson with Peyton Manning and, and, you know, he was not going to throw you the football. He was not going to – you weren't going to make the team if, if he didn't have your trust. And, and so it's going out there, understanding that the quarterback's dependent on you, um, you know, and so you've got to go out and earn his trust day in and day out by knowing the plays, knowing the offense, and then 
uh, making the play. Take me back to when you started at Stanford. And I remember in 95, Stanford heading out to Utah. I was, I was with the team and at yeah. the walkthrough. And I remember seeing some small guy wearing number 89, taking punts at the walkthrough. I'm like, hey, who's that? Troy, Troy Walters, yeah. who, who, who was that? Well, obviously number 89 soon became number five and you became probably the greatest receiver in Cardinal history. But, but take me back to the beginning. What was your first aha moment at Stanford? The first moment that you realized, hey, I, I can compete on this level and do big things. Yeah. Um, freshman year, you know, I went to Stanford with a chip on my shoulder. You know, I wasn't recruited out of high school heavily. Uh, blessed when Tyrell Willingham got the job at, uh, at Stanford. He had worked with my dad. He had seen me up close and personal being a ball boy with the Vikings and, and he understood what I could do and he gave me an opportunity. And so, you know, that was the, I had a chip from day one. I wanted to go in there and prove that I belong, that I could uh, play at this level. Um, I didn't want to disappoint coach Willingham. And, uh, and so freshman year, a couple scrimmages we had, um, that I stood out. I made some plays and, uh, and, my freshman year, I was part of the travel squad. There was an opportunity uh, that I was going to play, um, you know, so I went on all the trips. Uh, if I was kind of a backup guy. If an injury happened here or there, then I would be thrust into action. It, it blessed, I was blessed that it never did, but uh, probably my freshman year when, when uh, you know, I made some plays against the veteran older guys in some scrimmages and, and the coaches took me uh, on the road to travel and kind of, uh, got me that uh, game experience by just being on the sidelines. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and the rest, you know, just kind of went on an upward trajectory uh, pretty much from there. I'll always be partial to the run uh, that Stanford made in 96. That was my senior year uh, when you needed to get four wins in November, and you did, and you ended up in uh, the Sun Bowl that season, and you made some fantastic plays along the way there. But, but your final season at Stanford, 1999, finishing up with that Rose Bowl run, when that season began, or even certainly after week one, was there anything at all that indicated to you that, hey, wow, we could actually have a pretty special season here? Well, you know, going into that offseason, uh, I still remember the shirts. We were picked up eighth, eighth in the Pac-10 that year. Um, but what people don't realize is the end of uh, 98, we won two straight. We beat Washington State and beat Cal or beat Cal. And so we finished that season the right way. And, and we had a lot of guys coming back, um, you know, senior uh, laden team, uh, great group of, of, of seniors that kind of led that off season. Uh, no one predicted us to do anything. And so we kind of had a chip on our shoulder going into that, going into that, uh, that summer, that off season, had a good off season. Then the first game we played at Texas and we lost 69 to, 17 and I always remember going in the locker room and coach Willingham saying that hey guys we have a championship a champion in this in this locker room and we're kind of looking around like did you just see that we lost 69-7 but he believed in us uh, we went back to work that that week and and uh, and uh, you know that just showed me a lot just how we how we rebounded and went to work and and had a good week of practice and then followed up with a with a win and that kind of uh, we carried that momentum throughout the, that season. Yeah, no doubt. You, you beat Washington State. You went down to Tucson. Arizona was supposedly the preseason favorite. Yeah. Hung a half a hundred on them. One of my favorite games of all time, Stanford versus UCLA, the 98-yarder from you, uh, from Borchard to you. You ended up with 278 yards that day. And of course, it finished up with the with the rolls with with the with the Cal uh, with the win over a big game and the, and beating Notre Dame as well. Yeah. All leading up to the Rose Bowl. Spirits high, I'm sure. This is how it was all supposed to end. The fairy tale. This was supposed to. This is how it was supposed to go. Then you get hurt in the run up to the Rose Bowl. Take me through what it took to get through that injury and to take the field at the Rose Bowl and to play in that game and make make some make some clutch catches, especially in the first half. Yeah, that Monday the game was on a Saturday, so that Monday we were practicing. It was seven on seven. I remember it as if it was yesterday and went up for a pass and got undercut and fell on my wrist and immediately knew something was wrong, went to the hospital. They said I broke my wrist. And so that those the next couple of days were some of the hardest times of my life, knowing all the hard work, last college game, and I wasn't going to be able to play in the biggest game of, of it all. And uh, 
So I was uh, sad, um, you know, in, in the tanks a little bit. And then uh, a couple of days later, I think that Thursday, uh, our, you know, our trainers called around to, to some NFL teams and found out that there was no way I was going to do any more damage to my wrist. And if I could make it splint it up, if I could tolerate um, the pain, and if I could catch and perform with a, with a basically a brace on, then I could play. And so, uh, you know, they put a brace on and, and Thursday night in the hotel, I was catching passes with my splint on and, and I was catching it, didn't have any pain. And, and so then I knew there was a chance for me to play. And even if, even if it was just to go out there and, and be a decoy um, and whatever I could do to get on the field, help, help the guys, help my team win, I was going to do. And, um, you know, I was just blessed to be able to go out there and, and make some plays, wish I could have made some more to help us win, but uh, great experience, great two weeks. We went, down to LA for two weeks and just the, the memories you have with the players and the, the binding and, and all that was is something that uh, we as a team will never, never forget. Yeah. I can't believe it's 20 years ago. I suddenly feel really, really yeah. old. Uh, and even though Wisconsin had Ron Dane as great as he was, Stanford was in that game pretty much the whole entire way. If you're healthy, if Mike McLaughlin's healthy, if uh, Anthony Gabriel, the long snapper is also healthy as well. Stanford could have beat, should have should have beaten Wisconsin that day, right? Yeah, we we played a we played a heck of a game. Defense played a tremendous game, you know, holding Ron down. He had one big run um, that that really uh, you know uh, made his stats look look pretty good. But they did a great job. And that same that same day of practice, when I broke my wrist, Mike McLaughlin tore his ACL. Uh, Willie Howard had gotten hurt before, and we you know we just had a lot of injuries and. We just didn't have enough, but uh, it, it was a fun season, and and uh, you know we laid it all out on the line, and, and there was nothing to hang our hats on. Your favorite catch or play at Stanford, as you go through your your mental rolodex with all the big plays, yeah. all the big catches you came down with, which one stands out the most to you? Yeah, it would have been uh, my freshman or redshirt freshman year, '97 uh, season, um, no '96 season, the UCLA. The UCLA, um, mm -hmm. that was the first time I, I be really the coaches put me in as the number three receiver. And it was on our sideline. It was a wheel route, um, went up and kind of caught it over the head of the defender, scored. And that was probably the game where I felt like, okay, you know, I can really, really, really do something in this league. And, and uh, you know, we went on and won that game and ran the table, went to the Sun Bowl. But that play right there was probably the the if there was another man I can I can play at this lead, at this level that that catch was one of those that you know gave me a lot of confidence. Yeah, tied the game right before halftime if I remember correctly and helped lead to a comeback win for Stanford uh, in the second half. My vote would go to your falling juggling catch against UCLA three yeah, years later in '99, the 50 yarder uh, from Borcher. That was just a, a roller coaster of a game. Um, your thoughts on Stanford from afar, and even maybe not even actually from afar. You actually coached against Stanford uh, yeah. when you were with the Colorado staff in 2015, but. Cardinal are coming off their most successful decade ever in program yeah. history, done amazing things. What are some things that you've observed from Stanford from afar? And, 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 and what do you make of uh, Stanford's success over yeah, the past decade plus? Very impressed with what Coach Shaw has done, um, what Coach Harbaugh did, what Coach Shaw's done. Um, you know, they put Stanford on the map, not only academically, which it's always been, but also football wise. And now you can go there and, 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 and get a top, uh, education, but also play top level football and, and compete for championships. Um, you know, when I was there, it was more, uh, you know, it, we weren't, we weren't at the level they are now. And and now they're, you know, competing for championships. I know they had a down year uh, this past year, but uh, very impressed with Stanford, very impressed with the young men that continue to go there and continue to make plays and get drafted. And, and you see in the, you see in the NFL, a lot of Stanford alum, making plays and doing great things on and off the field. So uh, very proud of my alma mater, uh, what they're doing, and uh, wish them nothing but the best. Yeah, yeah, and Stanford's become tight end you, which is a fantastic thing uh, when you look at it. Now, as we wrap this up, I think a lot of excitement in, in Cincinnati, where, where you are right now with the Bengals. Uh, Joe Burrow, number one overall pick, a fantastic quarterback, did some, some historically wonderful things for LSU last year in their championship run. But the wide receivers, 
A.J. Green needs no introduction. Tyler Boyd has done good things. I remember him from my days uh, in, in Pittsburgh, watching him in high school and watching him uh, with the Pitt Panthers. John Ross, the former Washington Husky, some, some big things on his plate coming up. And, and T. Higgins, uh, the draftee in the first round from Clemson. Uh, what's your initial impression of the things you're going to be working with and the things that you that you can't wait to dive into personally uh, once things fire up again? Yeah, when I first got the job, I called the uh, receiver coach, Bob Bignell, and, and he had nothing but great things to say about the group as a whole. And that's what excites me. You know, I've been around some as a player. There are times when you, if you don't get the right room or you get the wrong type of receiver, then it can make uh, make a, a coach's job a, a nightmare. And he said, we, got, we have great guys. They come to work. Um, no egos. And it starts with A.J. Green. I have not met him personally, but uh, – you know, we've, we've exchanged texts and uh, texts and, and all that, but uh, he's a professional. He's a pro. He's a guy that the young guys can model their game after. Um, and so I'm excited to be able to work with him. And then Tyler Boyd has, has had some great seasons coming off in a thousand yard receiving uh, season. Um, and then John Ross has all the potential in the world. Um, if he can stay healthy, you know, he's the fastest guy in the NFL. And if he can stay healthy, He's going to add a dimension that uh, that's been missing, and and then drafting T. Higgins, um, you know, very productive college player from a great university, knows how to win. Uh, you know, I'm I'm excited. I'm excited. Uh, just the group of guys that we have, and and finally getting on the field and just putting it all together, and and helping a young quarterback. I told those guys that uh, we're going to have to, uh, you know, you don't have Andy Dalton, you don't have a veteran quarterback, so we're going to have to make sure that. Uh, we're on our game so that Joe uh, is comfortable and, and he trusts us and, and we help him along uh, as opposed to a veteran maybe helping the receivers along. And so those guys understand that. And we've had a good uh, three weeks of uh, virtual school and, and uh, learning the offense and, and uh, getting better uh, remotely. Yeah, a lot to look forward to in Cincinnati, but it's going to take a team effort, and I know this. The wide receivers are going to get coached up big time. Looking forward to seeing uh, what the Bengals can do in the years ahead. Troy Walters, assistant wide receiver coach from Cincinnati and still, for my money, one of my all-time favorite. You, you were my favorite, but you kind of still share – you kind of share the podium now with Christian McCaffrey. I, I, have, to, I have to make that confession. Yeah, those are, those right are big now. shoes, so I don't, I don't mind that company. That's, that's, that's good company to be in. Hey, you both wore number five, so there is that. That's it. That's it. Yeah. I actually uh, – when I was in Nebraska, coached uh, his, his brother. Was, was, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who, uh, Luke, who's uh, just like him, just a competitor. And, <laughs> and uh, so they got an awesome McCaffrey family, They're a great family. Yeah, yeah. Should be fun to watch uh, what, the, what Christian does uh, in, in, in Carolina, okay. some dangerous things, but also looking forward to seeing what happens in Cincinnati. Troy, thanks a bunch. This was a big-time pleasure. Can't wait to see what you do from here on out. And uh, best of luck. Stay healthy. Best of luck to you and the family. And uh, looking forward to uh, getting you in Cincinnati and on the ground. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. There he is, Troy Walters. How about that? And maybe the fact that that, that Troy has such a really cool first name. Maybe that should be the tiebreaker as far as uh, him being tied with uh, Christian McCaffrey as my favorite all-time Stanford football athlete. So maybe that gives him the tiebreaker, but uh, good stuff. Glad to hear that uh, he's making the move uh, to the NFL, still quarantined um, in Lincoln, Nebraska, uh, but uh, heading up to the NFL. And uh, he and the receivers... That's going to be intriguing to watch. I thought he brought up a fantastic point. You know, everyone's going to focus on Joe Burrow, but receivers go a long way towards making a quarterback look good or merely average. You got the weapons there with A.J. Green. I like Tyler Boyd. John Ross needs to show some things. And T. Higgins is going to be called on to, uh, to play a, a key role as well. So certainly Burrow is not going to have, his, uh, not going to have a shortage of weapons and a, lot, a shortage of guys to throw to uh, in, the, in the early going, at least in his first uh, rookie season. So that's going to be fun. That's going to be fun. And I hope you had as much fun um, with that chat as I did. Man, a supersized edition of the show. Thanks for hanging in there with us uh, throughout uh, this episode. Hey, you want to respond or react to anything you've heard on, on the program? Uh, feel free to. Hashtag TreeCast. 
Hashtag TreeCast is the way to go there. Uh, also, you can follow me on Twitter as well, at Troy Clarity. You want to advertise for the show? I would not be mad at that at all. Head to Believe.com, B-L-E-A-V.com, and uh, head to their advertising section and tell them, hey, I want to advertise on the TreeCast. I'm sure they will be as happy uh, to hear that news as I would be. So uh, certainly appreciate your support uh, of the TreeCast. And hey, if there's a there's a message board out there, a Stanford message board that you like to frequent out there, by all means, tell folks about it. Respond to things that you hear on the show on your friendly neighborhood message board. Uh, help spread the word. I'm appreciative of the download numbers. I like the download numbers that we've seen so far. They can be higher, though. So uh, would not be mad at uh, getting more people into the TreeCast tent. Next week's show, I think you're going to like our guest list, which will feature one of the great Stanford men's basketball players of all time. He's got ties to the NBA right now, too. And he's in a bit of a holding pattern as of right now. We'll talk about that with our scheduled guest for next week's TreeCast. That should drop either on Tuesday or Wednesday. Until then... Um, it, I don't say happy Memorial Day because it's not a happy occasion. Just, just spend some moments on Memorial Day thinking about what that day is really all about. Don't drink and drive. If you do, you're the dumbest person on the planet. And if you're out and about, just be safe and just be smart. Let's do all the things we need to do to make sure that everything in the fall begins and ends on time. Talk to you next week. Thanks for checking us out on this edition of the TreeCast with Troy Clarity, presented by the Believe Podcast Network.